0: Welcome to another edition of the Learning Curve, Gerard. I'm going to call this one. What are we going to call? It? We're going to call it the Countdown to the Street Party Edition because rumor <laughs> has it. Rumor has it that we're going to be receiving some shots pretty soon. Maybe uh, in, uh, in, in a shots couple of shots of liquor. Shots. More than. Well, I mean, it depends on how soon we all need the liquor, Gerard. I don't think we have to wait (laughs) months for that. Certainly not in my house. You do not. But um, no, I think, you know, I've been, I was reflecting, Gerard, and I was thinking how this year that we've spent together has been sort of like a chronicle of quarantine madness. So maybe when we go back and we're old and gray because we're so young and and spry now, Mm -hmm to um we'll be able to look back and see, like see the arc of the pandemic just it's 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 recording it's it's here for us to take but so here's the thing we can we can get excited about the street party that i'm definitely going to have my children are already planning once we're once we're safe to do so but i want to know what is one thing that once life goes back to some semblance of normalcy that you prefer not change something that has changed in this past year that you think should stay as it is. I don't have an answer. I just want to know what you think.
1: The continuation of remote meetings and conversations. Yeah. I will still do it in person, but I think the fact that we can now have speakers who may would have in person would have charged us 25, 50, 75,000 who are willing yeah. to now have the same conversation with the larger audience and still charge. That's fine. But I <laughs> want to keep what we see right now, even if it's 35% of it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, and you know what goes with that is, um, I mean, don't worry. Don't worry, people who employ me. I'm still willing to do work travel once it becomes safe. But boy, yes. I don't really miss the inside of airports very much. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I miss fancy hotel sleep. Not that I get to stay in fancy hotels very often, but I, I, I don't miss airports.
1: I miss not building up enough points on Delta. Um, I'm yeah, currently so platinum status, to to and I am close to diamond oh, status. Just go so go ahead
0: and brag. I'm close yes, to diamond no, status. But uh-huh. I travel
1: for the calls. Um, I like Yeah, to yeah, to you're up in the vacation. front.
0: You're up in the front, and the rest of us are in the back eating the bad food. I get it, Jordan. Thanks for rubbing that. <laughs> I needed that today. I needed that today. Next, next episode, we're going to discuss what I'm going to do with all the Amazon boxes that arrive at my house on the daily. That's another pandemic problem, uh, ah, but, but, but you know, we yes. to move on to, to education. So you just kiss your brain and think on that one for, for a week. Okay. I, I'm gonna I need a, can only make so many box cars with my kids. Um, all right. We, we have to get down to work today. Apparently, we have work to do. I've got a story of the week. I'm always happy to talk about New Hampshire just because it's just it's a beautiful place filled with super mm-hmm. interesting people. Um, one of our fabulous producers uh, happens to live in New Hampshire. It's Michaela Dawson. And um, finally, finally, New Hampshire. So I think. Many times on the show, at least a couple, we've talked about the fact that formerly the New Hampshire legislature kept basically saying, well, there's this federal charter schools grant. Yeah, we, we don't want that. We, we don't want free money for our kids. We we don't want federal money for charter schools. And now finally, <laughs> the Republicans have control in New Hampshire. And it looks like, um, and with the blessing of the commissioner, um, commissioner Frank Edelbluth, who is fantastic, that it looks like they're going to move ahead with this, um, $46 million federal grant, which will finally help double the state's charter schools. So that's going to be a pretty big deal. It's, you know, um, as we, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk about later in this podcast, charter schools are up against a wall. They've had having a really hard time in New Hampshire. It's been kind of a head-scratcher uh, for me. Uh, I know I've been up to visit folks in New Hampshire and talk about charter schools with them, and they've got some great ones there. They need more. Parents want more. And this might finally do it. So cheers to New Hampshire. We're going to be um, watching and, and hoping it gets done. And that's my story of the week.
1: Is it because... Solely because, I should say, of the change in the makeup of the legislature?
0: Well, it seems to be a pretty big part of it, yes. (laughs) The legislature just kept saying, yeah, no, we are not going to take that. And actually, in this article that I'm looking at, Gerard, which is um, from the Concord Monitor, um, you know, they describe in detail how it was the Democrats who controlled the fiscal committee for the past couple of years had just strongly opposed the grants. And so they would delay and then they would just, v- finally, they voted against them entirely. So, um, you know, and the argument was the same old argument that that we know isn't true. They would drain money. They would be so terrible for public education. Um, they are public, by the way, just in case anybody was curious. And yep. yeah, so this, this change has made a difference. So, you know, as we talked about postal election. It's sort of like um, the federal election went one way. A lot of the state elections went another. And I think that's really healthy. I think it's really healthy that we're going to see some changes in our state legislatures.
1: I've been to New Hampshire a couple of times. In fact, it would have been with um, Ed Choice, uh, Rob Inlow, and his team. And of course, uh, uh, Jason, uh, who we've had on the show before, Mm -hmm. uh, his Mm -hmm. old neck of the woods. It's not, I'm not saying this for New Hampshire per se, but when I hear you talk about this I just find it interesting when people say they don't want federal money. I often hear we don't want federal regulations or control, but we don't want federal money. Money. That's, that's, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So, so Carl, I've got a, another good story of the week, as we always do, and mine is further south than yours. Uh, it's talking about what could take place in D.C. And so uh, Mike Antonucci, who is writer for The Seventy Four. Title of his article is From Cafeteria Salad Girl to U.S. Secretary of Education, Question Mark, The Rise of Former NEA President Lily Garcia. And he goes on to note that she began her career as the salad girl, and that led to her becoming a school teacher. It led to her becoming the Teacher of the Year for the state of Utah, and then later president of uh, the largest union of its type in the country. And there are at least rumors, both official and unofficial, uh, to say that she is one of the top three people that uh, President-elect Biden is looking at uh, tapping to be Secretary of Education. And in the article, it goes on to talk about her credentials. It also raises questions about what will it mean for charter schools, as we've talked about, what it will mean for private schools. But more importantly, what is it going to signal uh, to the rest of the country, given her world her view and education. Uh, one thing that stood out for me, and maybe it has more to do with Utah, maybe it's just me because I'm getting older, the salad girl. Uh, she wasn't a girl uh, at the time that she was doing this, so maybe salad lady. And I say that in part because we have a ten- tendency to often refer to uh, women who are strong, confident in their field as girls, even though when they're older than 12. And number two, she brings a lot to the position that's interesting. Now, as someone who uh, worked on the Trump transition team, who supported him in 2020, who is a supporter uh, still of uh, Betsy DeVos beforehand uh, and what will take place afterwards, I think Biden is within his right to support uh, someone like her to be Secretary of Education. And guess what? I think she would bring three unique things to the table. Uh, Number one, I see her as an outsider. Now, that's going to sound strange given the fact that she's the president or former president of the NEA, which from, you know, 1990 to 2016, one of the largest supporter of Democrats across the country, very strong in funding federal campaigns and elected officials who have very different views than I do on vouchers, charters, tax credits and otherwise. But she as an individual is an outsider. And Why do I say that? If she, in fact, becomes secretary of education, she'll be the first one. In there, who made a career out of teaching in public schools? Most have uh, come from the area of public policy, of being a governor, uh, being a superintendent. A couple have actually had classroom experience, but she would be the first one. So she is going to be an outsider. Number two, she's going to bring to that position experience of what it's like to be in the classroom. And because she supported this, Every Student Succeeds Act, I think she's going to bring to the table a voice of what federal mandates actually look like in the classroom, not per se at the school board or the superintendent, that's important, not as a state chief, that's important, but for someone who's in the classroom. And third, yes, while she served as a union president, she's also bringing in a national and state-level organizational piece of what it means for people who are involved in delivering education at the local and state level. So while I think there are other candidates who are equally qualified, who are part of the one and two that Biden is taking a look at, I don't think we should simply dismiss her because she's a uh, former NEA president. I think she is someone we should take a look at, and I think that she could actually add something to the conversation. And I'm glad at least that she's on the uh, on the table for consideration.
0: Mr. Robinson, you never cease to surprise me. I mean, how many listeners of The Learning Curve would think, no way, we wouldn't have a nice thing to say about, about a former union head. But I think you make some really, really great points. And I think that, um, you know, listen, there are a lot of strong candidates being mm-hmm. mentioned right now. And mm-hmm. um it's an important position, and and there there's a lot that needs to be done in that office. We're we're going to hear from somebody right after this who's who's got a lot to say about how hard it can be to get things done in that office. But I think that the um, the perspective that you've outlined that that Lily Garcia could bring to the position, I, I tell you what, you're making me think, and I try not to do that. So, I, so. <laughs>
1: especially coming from me. Yes. We'll, we'll leave that will leave it alone. With that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: <They're coming off. laughs> uh, listen, before we get to our next guest, Jordan, I need to mention one really quick thing. And that is that um, in here with our story of the weeks, so I want to point out to our listener that Pioneer Institute is releasing a new it's pretty darn cool, a new toolkit aimed at crafting education tax credit scholarships programs. So yes, out of Massachusetts the place with no kind of scholarship programs comes a study <laughs> from not only pioneer, so PioneerInstitute.org, And, but Jason Bedrick, our friend, friend of the show, uh-huh.
2: who's,
0: who's, you know, this is his, this is his game. I mean, he's really good and he's going to help folks understand what it takes to create a really strong tax credit scholarship program like they have in New Hampshire. Um, anyway, Gerard, we have our next guest. Many of our listeners will already know him. And if they don't, they, they will want to. Coming up after this, we are going to be talking to Jim Blue, Assistant Secretary the U.S. Department of Education. He's your friend. He's my friend. Very excited. So we'll be right back. Listeners, we are back with somebody that I believe many of you will know and be very eager to hear from. We are talking today with Jim Blue, who currently serves as the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development at the U.S. Department of Education, and he will be there until January 20th, 2021. I, for one, will miss him. Um, Prior to joining the department, Jim advocated for education reform across the country. His roles included serving as Director of the 50 Can Affiliate Student Success California National President of Students First, and National Director of the Alliance for School Choice and its predecessor, the American Education Reform Council. Jim also helped guide the Walton Family Foundation's K-12 reform investments for nearly a decade. He holds a bachelor's degree from Occidental College and a master's in business administration from the Yale School of Management. Jim, welcome to The Learning Curve. Gerard and I are very happy to have you.
2: Thanks, Kara. It's great to be here
0: it is just so wonderful to have you. So we there's a there's just a lot we could talk about. Um and we're going we're going to get to sort of what you've been doing for the past 4 years, how the the just um, amazingly strong push and strong progress you made for so many of the things that we care about and that our listeners care about. But let's um let's talk a little bit about you. And and your career in school choice and then, um, your time in Washington. So you've had a, you've had a long career with an emphasis on school choice and, and really looking at K to 12 public education reform, everything from, you know, the 50 can network to, to the Walton family foundation. Um, and you know, things have always been contentious. Maybe in recent years they've gotten more so, but not just about education reform, um, but you've, been, you've spent the past four years specifically in D.C., which has been, you know, an interesting four years in so many ways. But we're certainly in a moment and have been for a while where um, partisan gridlock makes it pretty tough to get things done. So I would just love for you to talk for a while about your observations and insights of, of this past four years in, in your work in the department and in D.C.
2: Sure. I, uh, it has been quite a contrast working in states versus working within the Beltway. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say, you'd mentioned that it's contentious. Um, Education is a contentious issue, and I'm grateful for that. It should be contentious because we're talking about educating our children. Uh, And most of what you experience is people's passions on different sides of this issue. Um, So the contentious part, I welcome. That partisanship piece that you also mentioned in your opening—that um, is of greater concern, uh, and I—I I think it's worth talking about that for a moment. I, I don't think people understand why this issue uh, is anything other than my non-partisan, right? We should all be able to get together and figure out what to do for our children. Um, and and there's some history here that I think. Uh, People are losing sight of. So often I hear that we, Secretary DeVos and I and others, when we came into this role, suddenly made it by a partisan issue. And it's helpful, I think, for people to understand that it's been a partisan issue for years and years. And that all stemmed from a decision by the labor unions that represent teachers which is distinct from the teachers themselves, uh, to pursue a partisan strategy where they decided they were going to uh, control the Democratic Party machinery around education policymaking. And to do that, they then had to support Democratic candidates. And over the last 50, 60 years, they've gotten better and better at that. Uh, And so at this point, it's really rare to find an elected Democrat who hasn't had the teacher unions, the labor unions, um, be a partner in their entire career. And uh, as a result of that, they sort of own the Democratic Party uh, machinery and they use it uh, to make sure the Democrats have one view on education. That view is the labor union's view. And then the Republicans and others try and figure out How they react to that, so it's very much a reactive strategy for everyone else. Um, That is what's driven the partisanship, and it's something that we would love to, um, you know, take some of the heat out of over the next few years. Uh, You know, we're going to continue working in education reform, even though we're losing, we're leaving the office. Uh, So that's one of our goals over the next four years to make it more bipartisan again.
0: Yeah. And, and thank you for that because it's incredibly important and um, you know, it could be that it's much easier to make it more bipartisan outside of, (laughs) outside of and doing good work sort of on the ground and the state level. It's it's very, I, I really hear what you're saying there, Jim, because I know personally when I'm sitting at cocktail parties discussing, you know, politics with friends, sometimes one's voice, even for a person who leans a little bit left of center, one's voice on these things, people people get really angry. How how can you support such things? And my answer is always, well, Democrats didn't get this one right. They have it. And I think that you the way you framed it is really, really helpful. Um, and, and that brings us to, you know, so much of what you're already alluding to is this, this staunch opposition of so many on the left to, to anything, um, school choice, whether it's public school choice, private school choice, et cetera. And, and you've spent, um, the past four years working side by side with secretary DeVos and, and, you know, she has been, she has herself been, um, a controversial figure in many ways, but it's her, the work that she has done on behalf of kids, both as a public official and a private citizen is, is pretty unparalleled. I mean, she's been thinking about these issues for quite some time. And I just want to share with you, I had, I don't, I don't even know uh, how I would describe it, but the opportunity, let's say, to attend some years ago when she first took office, uh, convening at Harvard, um, where I witnessed something that I think speaks exactly to what and that was, she was not even given the opportunity to talk, <laughs> meaning people were so rapidly um, opposed to anything that she might say about school choice that there was truly in the audience, um, and I don't believe this is an exaggeration, not even a willingness to let her speak or to listen. And to her credit, she she stood there and, ca- and held her head high and um, you know, uh, others might have just left um, and I, I was really moved in that moment because um, I think that we've lost the ability to have dialogue or even civil disagreement in this country on way too many levels. So because you've spent so much time with her, I would love for you to talk a little bit about her leadership at the department. And, and why do you think it was uh, was her in particular that seemed to pose this it seems like it was an existential threat to the teacher's union, to, you know, to what Democrats believe they stand for in education and, and basically just the status quo.
2: Yeah, that is a great question. And one that I know she'll feel uncomfortable having me talk about. Um, and part of what drives that is that, uh, she does not believe this is about her. Uh, she, um, when when those of us who know her well uh, want to talk um, on her behalf, um, her counsel to us is always, don't let it be about me. Let's keep reminding people this is about children who in our country are not getting well educated. Um, and you just have to understand that is an existential threat to the, the powers that want to keep the system exactly as it is for their own power. Um, You know, you all know this, but we we need to let Americans know that about 25 percent of our eighth graders are basically illiterate. They are unable to read, according to our national report card. They score, as you know, below basic. And if you look at the definition, that means they cannot decipher a grade level test one out of four of our children. And by the way, that's been happening for years and years, as far back as we've been measuring. So the system is failing, kids. And we should be having a question a conversation about what do we do about that? And it's so much easier for our opponents to yell and scream so that we're not allowed to have a voice and can't get into a conversation about it. And what we we'd rather say is look, we have a suggestion, which is that we allow every family in this country to find the school that they think is the best fit for their child. And we as a society can figure out how to make that work. We know this because we already do it in every other sector of our economy. We have this odd sector where we force children to go to a school based on their residence. And by the way, that residence was Manipulated in a way where we have very segregated communities in this country, and so the so we have to we believe we have to break out of that and create new models for education to meet children where they are, so that we but that requires us to move away from the factory model that was built a hundred years ago, and uh, you know we are we know we're going to get resistance. But for now, can we at least have a conversation about what's best for kids?
0: So Jim, something that strikes me about that is when when we 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 know, me and we meaning the grand we, those who study education, who think about these issues, we know that when we frame it as you just did, that what parent, every family to be able to choose the school that's going to work for their child, that's going to help their child achieve academically and, you know, feel safe, feel comfortable, feel feel wonderful at school. When we put it that way to parents, we know that parents support not only private school choice-oriented reforms, but public school choice-oriented reforms, etc. Do you think, Jim, it will be easier or is it easier to talk to parents about what it is you all are trying to do have been trying to do outside of this official role at the Department of Education because there seems to be this huge disconnect right between what parents say they believe and then maybe the way they vote or I don't know if the if the opposition's message is just louder and clearer and somehow more threatening, right? You're gonna take away my local public school, which is of course not the case. What's What's your take on, on the conversation that we need to be having with the public?
2: Yeah, well, so I have a peculiarly Beltway focused view of this right now, which hopefully will dissipate as I move away from D.C. <laughs> um, but, but look, I think what the Democratic members of Congress in particular, who represent communities where the education system is not performing at a well, in a way that will allow their own constituents to thrive in the global economy. I have a real dilemma. Uh, on one side, they get a very clear message from the labor union, the teacher union, that stay in line. Choice is not allowed. We, that, you know, If you go against us on this, we will make sure you face a primary and you will no longer be in office, and what their constituents want. And one of the ba- advantages of having this platform is that the secretary continues to say, Can we please have a conversation about school choice? Uh, and people, you know, in the polls, they'll, they'll say they don't like Betsy DeVos because they've heard very clearly that there's something wrong with Betsy DeVos. But they embraced her issue. Poll after poll is telling us that parents families, Democrats, Republicans, Black, Brown, White, all say, we want to have school choice. And so their members have a dilemma where do they do what the teacher unions are telling them they have to do? Or do they listen to their constituents? And by the way, we're not, you know, we understand that we have a particularly radical view of school choice. And that is that Families should be able to choose whichever school they want to go to. Um, You know, we'd be willing to compromise if they had any choice, right? So, you could provide only public school options. Like, can we have more charter schools in our community? That should be an area where we can find common ground. Uh, But again, we're not even allowed to have the conversation because Democrats are shut down. They have this power has veto over them. And they're unwilling to stand up and say, "I got to think about what's best for my community."
0: And, and even charters are suffering, and I think I worry personally very much about about how much more they could suffer um, in the coming years. Um, I want to I want to make sure before because you know Gerard is. Getting upset, I know he's getting itchy that I'm talking so much. He doesn't like it. He's Kara, like, yeah, hurry up! <laughs> um, I I have to ask you about the National Education Tax Credit that you've been working on. That we've had many conversations about, and it's been a huge, huge effort, a huge undertaking. Um, and you guys have been working on this National Education Tax Credit, which I hope you'll explain to our general audience. And then, you know, you've also been really leading this effort to peel back federal regulatory and bureaucratic creep, you guys worked so hard to get private schools the monies that they really are due under equitable services um, when when the CARES money came out. Um, Can you talk about some of these key policy efforts, why you see them as so important and and how you're going to continue to fight?
2: Yeah, so you're right. Those are the two major platforms in the K-12 space. There are lots of other issues in K-12, and there are certainly other issues in higher education. Um, that's probably for another conversation. But there's a, there's a reason we focused and the secretary focused on those two issues. Uh, let me start with the federal role in education because that's one we don't talk about as much. And I'd love to, of course, I'm happy to talk about the tax credit too. Um, the federal role, um, there is, again, a very different point of view uh, that the secretary has that I share. Uh, and there are more than two views in the world. I shouldn't, I don't want to say that. But I think for to uh, sort of describe the teacher union view versus the review of reformers like us, um, the teacher unions have for a long time wanted to increase federal funding. For K-12 education, um, they would particularly like to get a base of pay from federal taxpayers um, that every teacher in the country would get merely for being a member of their teacher union. Um, and you know, in fact, you saw Kamala Harris introduce that. I think it was fifteen thousand or thirteen thousand dollars base for every teacher in the country, and there are three million of them. And you can quickly do the math; this gets to be very expensive for. Federal taxpayers, and there's a, you know there's an obvious reason they want that. State budgets, local budgets have to be balanced. Federal budgets do not need to be, which is why we have these huge deficits. And if they can tap into that for teacher salaries, there's essentially an endless um, upside for them. Now. Um, you know, we think teachers should be well compensated and particularly excellent teachers should be paid a lot more. But we think there's an inherent danger in having the federal government play such a major role in education. The secretary is a a, a believer in what's called subsidiarity, which is the unit, the institution closest to the problem should be empowered to solve it. Um, in our view, that institution is the family, next up is the local school board. And so we want their, them to have the power to make decisions. Uh, so what's happened over the course of time, it's gone flowed back and forth, but the federal role has gotten more and more muscular. And the secretary has taken leadership in moving power back to the states and local governments, relinquishing power. It's odd to me sometimes she's like criticized. She doesn't have leadership skills. And what's happening is people are conflating the desire to accumulate power in Washington, D.C., versus having a vision where power moves over to state and local governments. And she has a very natural conclusion around this, which is the more money that's coming out of Washington, strings, the more rules and regulations the more muscular role the federal government would have. And so her natural inclination is to shrink the federal budget and to shrink the federal role. She was, last year, one of the many uh, things she's proposed is simply doing a block grant. Like, if you're going to give money, then give it to the states and local governments in a way that they can decide how best to spend it rather than live up to
1: all the rules and regulations that we generate in Washington, D.C. Jim, is so glad to, uh, so glad to have you on. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, it's a pleasure, George. Great to hear your voice.
1: 1991, I'm a fifth grade school teacher at the Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles. A gentleman named Kevin Teasley comes to our school and talks to me, the principal, uh, about vouchers. I'd never heard of a voucher at the point. And he said it'll be public money uh, to allow parents to use that money to go to a public or private school made sense to me. And then I ended up working with a group of people to get a petition signed to get it on the California ballot. Uh, It was soundly defeated in 1993, but people overlooked the fact that there were a lot of Black people, Asians, whites, Hispanics, and others who did not vote for George W. Bush in that election, but who in fact voted for Clinton, but who also supported vouchers. That was 91, 92, 93. At the same time, In Wisconsin, you've got Governor Tommy Thompson, a Republican, working with uh, Representative uh, Polly Williams, African-American Democrat, who said we're going to introduce the first uh, urban-based voucher program in the country. And in both instances, Los Angeles and in Milwaukee, people found a way to walk across the political line, the racial line, and the partisan line to say let's do what we believe is best for children across the board. Now let's fast forward to the last six years. The right-of-center, left-of-center coalition in K-12 education reform seems to be pretty frayed. Would you like to talk about what you see the two major political parties heading in terms of their support for private choice, public charter schools, standards-based testing, and what has happened, you know, to define so much of this over the last thirty years?
2: Well, George, thank you. Uh, so. Um, just even raising Kevin Teasley's name, that he'll be very pleased to to hear you mention him. For now, he is doing um, choice work and running some schools, grade schools uh, in Indiana. Um, so people get the bug and then they stay in this uh, field. Uh, that, um, I, and as you probably recall, I have, I worked out of um, Milwaukee for a while it inspiring that um, about a third of the parents were able to get these scholarships for their children and start to um, turn around their lives. And there's a lot of evidence now about how uh, well those children uh, did as they grew up. Um, what has happened, uh, you're asking for that historical perspective. Uh, I do think I think this is probably most poignant for charter schools, right? Because um, Polly Williams, Howard Fuller, the um, African American community leadership that uh, led to the Milwaukee uh, voucher program, um, was a, was a little unusual, right? Most of school choice across the country was being accomplished through public charter schools, and for years and years. Um, when it was small, the union would have some uh, opposition to it, but they didn't have a full blown campaign against it. And there's been a lot of discussion about why that would have happened. We have to remember charter schools are public schools and it puts them in an awkward place where they're actually arguing against public schools. Uh, There's a lot of thought that Uh, They never expect charter schools to scale up the way they have. I think they're now like 3% of uh, students out there in public charter schools. Uh, And I think they also thought it would be easy to unionize them. And while they have been successfully unionizing almost a quarter of them, I think they ran into uh, the dilemma when you have school leaders who are focused on making getting better outcomes for students. Um, The school leader has to make a choice if they want to be supportive of a union and deal with the union. And unfortunately, I think so many times across the country, they said, boy, it's hard enough running a school, particularly in a low-income community, getting the kind of results I'm getting. I'm not sure I want to deal with the teacher union. And so the teacher unions have not been invited in. Uh, that does, doesn't does mean they haven't been able to use um, their collective uh, efforts to make sure that they are able to unionize some schools, but on the whole, they haven't been welcomed in the way they wanted to. So you're right, about six or seven years ago, uh, they decided that enough is enough and we have to get rid of public charter schools. At least we have to get rid of those that do not look like the traditional public schools. And so they've been on a Uh, quite a tear. They got the NAACP, put pressure on them to declare a moratorium. Um, And what's what's happening now is that um, the charter school movement do a lot, got a lot of support from the prior administration, the Obama administration. Arne Duncan, John King, others were supportive of high-quality charter schools and encouraged them. Um, When when Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump came in, um, th- so the support for Demo- from Democrats just evaporated overnight. The-, the teacher unions were saying, we don't want charter schools. Leaders like Arnie and John were gone. Um, the civil rights community still stands up and says, well, we-, we need more choices for our children. But on the whole, the Democratic machinery is saying, we want to get rid of charter schools. Um, I really worry about what's gonna to happen to public charter schools in the next four years. Um, because they they blossomed under Obama. They actually did far better under Betsy DeVos, you know, one and a half trillion billion, I'm sorry, one and a half billion dollars worth of aid through the charter school program, uh, which is about a third of the, the amount of money over the 25 years it's gone out to the charter schools. But they're no longer going to have support. Um, the Biden administration has already made clear, President Biden a President-elect Biden has already made clear that his position on charter schools is the teacher union's position. Um, so I worry what's going to happen to them. Um, I hope that what happens is that the communities who are benefiting from charter schools will stand up and tell their representatives, Democrats, Republicans, no, we not only need to continue the schools we have. We need more high-quality options in our community, and please continue growing charter schools.
1: You mentioned your work in Milwaukee, and that is one focal point when we have a conversation about uh, parental choice in the United States. Let's move to another city where you have familiarity, and that's Washington, D.C. What was interesting some years ago is you get Secretary of Education Rod Page having a conversation with uh, Kevin uh, Chavis, who's the chair of the D.C. City Council Education Committee. You have uh, Tony Williams, then mayor of D.C., and you have Dr. Howard Fuller, uh, Chair of Bayo. And they have a conversation about D.C. and the importance of a three-sector initiative. It was to A, fund the traditional public schools where for the foreseeable future in D.C. and the country, so many of our children will call home. Let's create a, a funding formula and a mechanism to keep them whole. At the same time, we should have one for the charter school sector for all the reasons that you identified. And Fuller being from Milwaukee, but also of having a large um, private school sector in DC, one in need of some support because again, families paying to the public school sector also want money for their kids. They created a successful three sector initiative. And as you mentioned with the new administration coming in, um, that's one lane but what lessons can we take from what you've seen with the three-sector initiative in D.C., and maybe what lessons governors, state lawmakers, mayors, business leaders can think about as they look in their own home state and city on how we can look at either three-sector initiative or strengthening one, but not having to compete against another?
2: Yeah. So it's supposed to be about the kids, right? And if we focus on students, we can easily come to an agreement that the traditional public schools could use some support in this area, the public charter schools need support in another area, and the private schools merely need families to be empowered to choose them. And that's where, that was the foundation of the three-sector agreement that Chavis and Mayor Williams and others uh, came up with. And You know, it's worked. the The agreement to give a little bit of support to each of those sectors uh, has gone very well. I I think the charter school sector is happy with it. The traditional schools are happy with it, Um, and the private schools are happy with it. But um, I will predict that the tax credit scholarship model will eventually replace what's happened in D.C. And part of the reason is that every year. There is a battle uh, between you know, people who are very close to the teacher unions who want to make sure that they're sending signals that they're supportive of the teacher union policies. And so they try and kill off that scholarship program every year. So every year there's a fight to make sure those children continue to get scholarships. And by the way, we're talking about some of the most disadvantaged families in Washington, D.C., who are empowered to choose these schools. Um over, over time, the tax credit will be more beneficial for another reason, which is just flexibility. Remember, the tax credit programs are voluntarily supported by donors who want to make sure children get a chance to go to private schools. And in D.C., a large segment of those schools are Catholic schools. Um, and what's happened, because the law was now 2005 when we first worked on that, Um, The law is not as flexible as the market needs to be. And so over time, charter schools have grown to serve the children in Washington, D.C. And traditional schools serve the other half of public school children. And so um, there's far more choice and competition. And some of the rules and regulations that were put in place when the law was first passed need to be updated. Um, Those scholarships turn out to be about half as much in value as what the charter schools get, and that means that they're scraping along while charter schools are properly funded, right? And so that can be addressed to a tax credit scholarship program where people are, you know, actually able to make decisions based on need and the requirements of the family, how much is actually needed to um, attend a private school.
1: All very good points and I'm always glad to hear you attentive to finance and the nuances of what an education tax credit will look like versus a voucher and the fact that if you talk to Dr. Fuller and if Polly Williams uh, was still around with us today, how they would look at funding the voucher differently for tuition versus what the cost of true education is uh, across the board. Well, Jim, first of all, let me thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for your service uh, to the country and your role at the U.S. Department of Education. Let me thank you for the uh, 20 years that we've known each other, but also want to thank you for the million-plus children, families, educators, entrepreneurs who have actually changed the trajectory of their immediate lives, but that their descendants are going to find themselves moving from poverty to prosperity because of the investments that you made uh, through your different uh, iterations of your career from Walton and other places, because it's people like you who we often don't know, or if you're not within the circle who simply said, I'm going to take my smarts and do something to raise the boat. So the American dream isn't the nightmare, isn't a nightmare, but it's something real for families." So personally and professionally want to thank you for that and look forward to uh, the next phase of your work in this area.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that. Because, It's all about the children, right? And what this next generation grows up to experience in America. So thanks for that, Jared. Great to talk to you. Look forward to connecting.
0: Thank you so much, Jim. Take care.
2: All right. Thanks.
0: Gerard, we're going to close it out with the tweet of the week. And because, you know, I'm so biased against my place. Actually, I'm not biased. I'm, going to, I'm about to critique where I'm from. Um, this is a great tweet from a quote from an article in, by Iris Stoll in Education Next. And this is a parent he's quoting saying, Boston has managed to devise vaccines against the virus and has some of the nation's best hospitals. Why can't we figure out a plan to get schools open, asks one parent. And, you know, so this goes right back to, I, I mean, Boston's not alone. A lot of places across the country, kids have really not had any in-person instruction in Boston. It has been A particular challenge. And, you know, it's really, this article is really interesting because it talks about groups of parents that are just out there saying it is time to reopen our schools. Other places are doing it safely. Other countries are doing it safely. Our children are falling behind. One of the things I loved about this article is one of the parents in it pointed out, very frankly, he said, This is not a political issue. School reopenings have become highly politicized. And he said, Look around you. Almost everybody in Boston is a Democrat, right? You, in fact, you just have to. You might, maybe, you could find some people right of center if you if you head down to Pioneer Institute's offices. (laughs) But, but for the most part, you know, (laughs) it's a a pretty blue place. So it's not a political thing. It's parents of 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 every background want these schools open. The one with the one caveat, I would say this, Um, you know. I think that the mayor has had, obviously, a very tough decision in front of him this whole time, and we have to respect the wishes of parents who do not feel safe. And there are many of them, especially in communities um, in certain neighborhoods of Boston that have been heavily impacted. But I think this all goes to flexibility. like. Uh, some places have done a much better job of saying, we're going to figure out how to meet the needs of different kids. If you want in person, we're going to try and figure that out for you. If you need to stay remote, we're going to try and figure it out for you. Uh, so far, Boston has struggled to do it. And the one thing I will say um, to to the author here of what is really a great article, uh, Mr. Stoll, is that I would, I would have loved to see a little bit more discussion of the role that the Boston Teachers Union has played in ensuring that schools... Um, are, have remained online, quite frankly. So um, that is our tweet of the week. It's a good read listeners if you if you get a minute in education next. So listeners, um, Gerard and I are taking a vacation. Our producers are taking a vacation. We hope that many of you will be taking a vacation. Maybe you can catch up on your learning curve listening, but we will be back with you in the new year. Very happy to have said goodbye to 2020, and we're going to be back with a great first show. We will be talking to drum roll, Ava Moskowitz, the founder and CEO of Success Academies, Success Academy Charter Schools. So, Gerard, I'm going to miss you, man.
1: Yes, we have had a had an eventful but uh, good. 2020 in some ways, and uh, glad to tag team with you and look forward to what 2021 will bring.
0: It's got to be better, right? Don't know. Don't curse it, right, Karen? Don't curse it. Well, I wish you very happy holidays and you and yours health and happiness and look forward to talking to you after January 1. Take care, Gerard.
1: Take care. Bye, everyone.